Well, let me encourage you to have your Bible open in Matthew chapter 1 and uh, draw your attention again, particularly this morning, to verses 18 to 25. All through the Bible, you'll read of many ways in which God intervenes in the affairs of men in order to bring an outcome which would otherwise have seemed completely impossible or at best, highly unlikely. Now, of course, God is involved in everything in this world. It's, it's his world. Everything is of him, for him, through him, to him. He is completely sovereign over everything. But there are those times in the Old Testament where we see God moving in very particular, specific ways uh, and see very clearly and obviously the hand of God at work uh, in, in a way that perhaps without that particular event unfolding, we would not have seen God so readily. So we see Isaac born to Abraham and Sarah long after uh, Sarah was of childbearing age. We see the dreams which Joseph could interpret and the effect that that had on his life in Egypt. We see the burning bush which wasn't burning when Moses got closer to look at it. The plagues in Egypt and Israel's escape through the midst of the water. The manna from heaven in the wilderness and water gushing from the rock in order to quench their thirst. The walls of Jericho falling down. The sun standing still in the sky in the days of Joshua. The escapades of the judges that we've recently been considering. The birth of Samuel. David's defeat of Goliath. The miracles at the hand of Elijah and Elisha, the two prophets. The fiery furnace and the lion's den in Babylon. Time after time, God bears his arm in favour of his people to show that he is God and remarkable events take place. But all of those events that we read of in the Old Testament are about to be totally eclipsed by the thing that God is about to do. And that's the thing that Matthew goes straight into in verse 18 of his gospel after he's given us that genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ through Joseph's line back to Abraham. And what we see at verse 18 is God enters the world in a most wonderful and marvellous way. Now, God being spirit, being infinite, being ever-present everywhere, God has always been present in this world. There have been times when he has spoken, and those to whom he was speaking very clearly heard his voice. There were times such as when the people of Israel were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and that time when Moses actually went up the mountain to speak with God and to receive the Ten Commandments, there were times then that um, they felt and saw God's presence in a most remarkable and unquestionable way. Undoubtedly, God was there on the mountain. The many deeds which God did uh, on behalf of Israel 
which I've alluded to already. All of these things giving clear evidence of the reality of his being and his presence in this world and especially amongst his people. Israel's enemies even often left with no choice but to acknowledge the God of Israel. On a few occasions, such as with Jacob and as we saw recently with Gideon's mum and dad, even Jesus himself appears in, in the Old Testament in front of certain Old Testament people and he appears to them in a human form, not made flesh as we're about to read now, but nevertheless appearing to them in a way that they could see him as a man in front of them. But despite even those appearances of Christ, God never before has actually entered the world the way he's about to enter the world. Never before had the creator stepped into his creation the way he's about to in Christ. Never before had the eternal God been constrained by time in the way that Christ, just like all of us, is going to have to live his life day by day from babyhood through to adulthood, just as we do. One second, one minute, one hour, one day at a time. God entered the world in a very real sense. He became flesh and bone and dwelt amongst us as a man. Now, the Bible teaches something very important about you and I as we are in our sin. It tells us that we have inherited a sinful nature from the first man, Adam. Theologians use the phrase federal head to speak of Adam, and that we are all in him and they speak about that because the Bible teaches that after Adam sinned, all of us have sinned in Adam. That spiritual life which Adam had possessed when first he was created, that spiritual life that he had, which enabled him to have open fellowship with God. We read of God coming and walking with Adam in the Garden of Eden. That fellowship became broken because when Adam sinned, that spiritual life with which Adam had been created died. He was still alive physically, but a spiritual death had occurred within him. He and Eve had been told that transgression of God's law would bring death upon them. And yes, that did mean physical death, but neither of, them, neither of them died physically straight away. They would die, and they did die, but many years later. However, whilst they remained alive physically, they had died spiritually. They became dead to God, and they became separated from God. They became ashamed of their guilt and tried to hide from God. They'd never done that before. God came looking for them and came 
calling for them. He'd never had to do that before. This is the result of their sinfulness. And the Bible teaches that uh, this being dead now to God, the loss of this spiritual life, that is the spiritual state into which everyone has been born since. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every baby that's born is born in this spiritual state which we've inherited from Adam. Now on Sunday afternoons we're looking at the the letter of Paul to the Romans and when we get to chapter 5 of Romans, um, Paul will expound that theme for us uh, about how it is that we in Adam are dead in trespasses and sins. When he writes to the Ephesian church, uh, we, re we read those well-known verses in the first part of chapter 2 where twice Paul refers to us being dead in trespasses and sins. Now, death implies that there must previously have been life. Is Paul suggesting that all of us were born with spiritual life, but because of the sinful things we do, each of us have snuffed out that life? If only we'd be more careful, we might not actually be dead. Well, actually, no, that is very much what Paul is not saying. We were born dead because we inherited that deadness from Adam. He originally had that spiritual life. It was in him that it first died. And all of us have been born dead ever since. We commit sins because we are born sinful. We don't become sinful because we've committed sins. We commit sins because we are slaves to sin, because that's our nature. Because we've become dead to God. Everyone since Adam has been born dead in trespasses and sins. Alienated from the life of God is how Paul describes it in Ephesians 4, verse 18. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They became alienated. They alienated themselves from the life of God because of their sin. And that's the position that all of us are in, in our natural sinful state. And this is what we mean by the phrase original sin, if ever you've heard that mentioned this sinful nature with which each of us are born. So, why am I mentioning this? Well, it's for a very important reason. You see, if Jesus had been born, having been conceived, just as you and I were conceived, if Jesus had been conceived in the normal way by means of physical union be between Joseph and Mary, Jesus would have been conceived and born just like the rest of us. If he'd been conceived and born like that, he'd have been born as a sinner in need of a saviour, just like you and me. 
He'd have been born dead in sin and needing to be made alive, just like you and me. But Jesus came into the world as a man who actually had that spiritual life which Adam once knew. Now that spiritual life was a sinless life because being without sin is necessary if you're going to have open communion and fellowship with a holy God. You need to be without sin. Jesus came into this world to do what Adam could not do and to put right what Adam caused. Jesus came into this world to live a perfectly righteous and sinless life and retain that spiritual life, retain that righteousness, retain that sinlessness in the way that Adam could not and did not. But Jesus will. We lost that in Adam. But Christ has come to restore it. How can we be rescued from the deadness of our sin? Answer. If one who is not dead, if one who does not share that spiritual deadness that we have within us, if one who has no sin can take our sin, and die in our place because he was not born dead and so he can die if he would become our perfect substitute we can be rescued from the deadness of our sins we need one who is alive spiritually one who is sinless and righteous spiritually who may take our sins and die in our place. And so here in Jesus, here is a man with no sin of his own, who is not dead in trespasses and sins like we are. He now is qualified as a sinless man, as a, a deathless man. Well, we can speak of things being lifeless, can't we? Well, we can speak of Christ as being deathless, because he, he did not have that, that spiritual death of sin within him, because he was without sin. That's who Jesus was. That death that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, that was not found in Christ at any time. So this man with perfect spiritual life may now, may now die for me on my behalf as he bears the penalty of my sins in my place, because he has no sins of his own. He has the life to be able to die. One who himself is already dead in sins, cannot die for others who are dead in sins. Only one who is alive before God and in God only one who is without sin may die such a death. Now, if Jesus will do that for me, 
And if God the Father will accept that from Christ on my behalf, then my sinful death gets cancelled out because of what Christ has done for me. My sins, my guilt get cancelled out because Jesus has taken both my sins and my guilt upon himself for me, paid the penalty for me. And he has to die physically because physical death is also part of sin's penalty. And the Christian gospel is the message that this is precisely who Jesus is and this is precisely what Jesus has done. And because he is also eternal God as well as man, the eternal nature of sin's punishment is all dealt with in Christ as well. And the issue is this, how does God come into this world as human flesh and bone, but not inherit this sin problem from Adam that we all have? Well, the answer is his virgin birth. Mary's conception within her womb was a breaking away from that line of sinful inheritance. Instead of a union with a sinful man, Joseph in this case, it was instead by means of a mystical and divine work of the Spirit of God within Mary's body. Now be clear about this, there's nothing queer or weird physically going on here. The Holy Spirit is spirit and he worked the biggest miracle of grace this world has ever known inside Mary's body that she might conceive and give birth to a child who had no sin, who was free of this inherited sinful deadness of soul that's in all of us. Christ did not have that in order that he might live a life and then be qualified to die in the place of sinners. It's such a wonderful thing, isn't it? It kind of makes you wonder, why do we only ever read this at Christmas time? This is such a glorious part of God's word as we read of Christ's coming into this world in order to be our saviour. Name of all majesty, fathomless mystery, king of the ages by angels adored, power and authority, splendour and dignity. Bow to his mastery, Jesus is Lord. Child of our destiny, God from eternity, Love of the Father on sinners outpoured. See now what God has done, sending his only Son, Christ, the Beloved One. Jesus is Lord. It's a wonderful, wonderful message. As Christ becomes our Emmanuel.
Well, of course, the story also puts the focus on Joseph. And we see that Joseph is a godly choice. And so I want you to pay attention particularly to verses 19 and 20 and then verses 24 and 25. As Joseph has to deal with this situation that's thrust upon him. Last week we looked at the genealogy of Joseph. Uh, You might have had the impression that there were probably not too many couples around who fitted the bill in terms of uh, a life descended from King David. Actually, that's probably not true because of Israel's history. There probably were quite a lot of people that could have qualified in that sense. Uh, Ten of Israel's twelve tribes which after the reign of King Solomon in the Old Testament broke away from the other two tribes, they were eventually overthrown and more or less destroyed by the Assyrians. And that all happened just over 700 years before Christ was born, leaving basically the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And the the tribe of Judah was by far the larger of those two tribes. And the tribe of Judah was the tribe of King David. Of course, God was preserving that tribe from the line of David because of all that had been prophesied, as we considered last week. The Apostle Paul, he's able to tell us that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. But actually, the majority of Jews in in Israel in New Testament days, the majority of them probably were from the tribe of Judah. You might remember at the end of Judges, we read there that all but 600 men of Benjamin remained alive. Now, there would have been many in the tribe of Judah who, of course, were not descended from David. Their their family line would have come by another route. But Joseph and Mary would have been far from unique in terms of their ancestry. There would have been quite a number of other couples uh, who could have traced their family line back through David. But we read, don't we, that Joseph was a just man, an upright man. Probably not quite so many men of the tribe of Judah and descended through David who fitted this bill. God knew what he was doing in his selection of this man and woman, Joseph and Mary. Of course he did. In some ways, Joseph probably doesn't get the recognition that he should in in the terms of how God used him and how he gave himself to the Lord uh, for the Lord to use as his servant in this way. We probably wonder what's going through Mary's mind as she thinks about how Joseph will react when it dawns upon him that his betrothed is pregnant and he knows only too well that he cannot possibly be the father of this child. Perhaps Mary has every confidence in him. Perhaps she's in fear and trepidation. We can't be sure, actually. The, The Bible doesn't really give us that kind of insight into what was going on. But we read of this betrothal. Betrothal in Jewish culture was kind of in between what we would understand as engagement and marriage. 
It was a much more formal thing than engagement as we have today. Betrothal was more than just a shared commitment to get married. Betrothal was in itself a legally binding contract, and not just between the couple to be married, but actually between their two families. It was much more of a, much more of a family thing back then, still is in some Middle Eastern cultures today. And to get out of a betrothal was actually as good as having to go through a divorce because, because of this legally binding aspect of even betrothal before you get married. Now, a lesser man than Joseph spiritually, uh, well, a lesser man than Joseph may have believed that it was well within his rights to, to shame his betrothed in order to make it clear that he was completely without fault or blame in this matter. Look at what she's done to me. His father ordinarily would want his own son to come out of this unblemished to protect the family honour, which was a huge thing, still is in Middle Eastern culture, more than it is today in Western society. And such a man found in this position, he would want to maintain his own honour so as not to sully or tarnish his own name and ruin his chances of finding a new bride. It's not at all surprising that Joseph cannot see how things can continue between himself and Mary when he first discovers that she's pregnant. She has, after all, been unfaithful to him, hasn't she? Because surely, to begin with, he, he must find it really impossible to consider it any other way. But we see, nevertheless, in Joseph, we find a man who's filled with genuine compassion and tenderness and kindness towards Mary. I imagine Joseph to have been utterly heartbroken and dreadfully confused, but he demonstrates such a godly character. There's no, no guile, no malice, no vengeance to be found in him towards Mary. We're told there in verse 20, aren't we? While he thought about these things, we can only imagine the turmoil that he's going through, the, the knots in his stomach that he's feeling as he's trying to work out what he should do next about this situation. But one thing that we do notice, he doesn't use this circumstance as an excuse to behave in an ungodly fashion. Have you ever used a hard circumstance to try and justify a poor response or ungodly behaviour? Well, if you were going through what I'm going through, you'd behave like this as well. <laughs> ever been tempted to go there? It's easily said. Maybe it's too often said. But we don't find that kind of response in Joseph. And it does well sometimes to just pause and consider Joseph in this situation he's in. What a godly example of a man he is. What a godly example of a believer he is. To behave in such a controlled and dignified way, with such care and concern towards Mary. Despite this 
great hurt that he must initially be feeling. God knew what he was doing in choosing this man to be the one who would care so tenderly for the young woman who would bring God's Christ into the world. And God, in his kindness towards Joseph, reveals through the angel what's already been revealed to Mary. And Joseph continues to be a fine example in how he responds to that which God reveals to him. And that's something for us to think about. Now, of course, today, God will speak to you by means of his word, the Bible, and with the aid of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit himself may certainly prompt and nudge your conscience on certain things. But do remember that Jesus said of the Holy Spirit that he, the Spirit, will guide you into all truth. And the Bible is the truth, and the Bible itself tells us that days of direct revelation from God are over, and that the Bible itself now is our source of truth. And Jesus also tells us that the Holy Spirit never works under his own authority. There isn't an independence to the Holy Spirit separate from Christ or God the Father or the Word of God. Read chapters 14 through 16 of John's Gospel and you'll, you'll see those wonderful things explained by Christ about the work of the Spirit. And so for us today, we, we prayerfully turn to the Word, the Bible, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in order to hear God's voice there, prayerfully in the Word. But what will we do with the things that we hear? Well, Joseph, again, is such a godly example for us in verses 24 and 25. What do we see him do? Well, he takes God at his word. He does as he's commanded by the Lord, and he lives as he should in response to God's word. He denies himself. He takes up his cross to follow the Lord in obedience and meekness and humility. Well, let that be an example for us. And then, in closing this morning, uh, let's just consider the central verses in that passage that we've read from verse 20 through to verse 23, where the angel speaks to Joseph and the good news is repeated. The angel repeats that which has already been revealed to Mary. Now, the visitation of the angel to Mary, Matthew does not record. Luke does so in the first chapter of his gospel record. But we're reminded of the three crucial truths concerning this baby which is to be born of Mary. Firstly, this baby is of God. This is the fulfilment of God's promises given in the Old Testament. And this baby is the direct result of God's activity in this world by his Holy Spirit. Verse 20. God is intervening in the affairs of this world in order to do his mighty work of salvation. This baby is of God. Secondly, 
Many people point to what they believe to be the inactivity of God in the world and use that as an excuse not to believe. Why does God permit this? Why does God allow that? Surely God should. Because they can't see God doing what they think God ought to be doing, they decide that God is doing nothing. And they use that as an excuse not to believe. Because if God is here, if he is God, then surely he'd be doing something about that. Heard people talk that way? Maybe you're one of them. Well, I can guarantee that all of the kinds of things that people point to when they say those kinds of comments, all of those things that they'll be looking at, they are all the result of sin. They are all the outworking of sin in this world. The sinfulness that's in men's hearts. The brokenness of this world, which is the fallout of sinful lives. Now, whether they realise it or not, usually, of course, they don't realise what they're actually asking for and what is actually needed is for God to do something about sin in the world. They don't realise that that's the answer. But the Bible shows us that is the answer. The answer to all of those problems that people point to is God's salvation in Christ. Because salvation in Christ will either deal with those issues in the here and now, or whilst those things we may have to continue to endure, we have the promise and the assurance that one day soon we'll be free from them then in that eternal place of far greater glory and holiness and righteousness. So either way, God's salvation of sin and sinners is the answer to all of this world's ills. It may help us in this life, but even if it doesn't, it gives us a glorious hope for eternity and in these verses God declares that this is what God has done see now what God has done sending his only son this baby is the promised savior who alone can save sinful men and women from their sins the name Jesus is given is what he will do God is salvation call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Because, thirdly, this baby is God. God with us. This baby is from God. This baby is God. This baby is God's salvation. They're the three important lessons that we find from these central verses in this passage. They're the three most important things you can ever pause to think about. This baby born in the manger in Bethlehem is from God. This baby is God. And this baby is God's salvation. That's why you must decide seriously and carefully what you will do about this Jesus, the God-man, 
who has entered this world so that he might die, so that sinners like you and me might live. The deathless man would die so that those who are dead may be made alive again in him. The sinless man would be made sin for us, that he might bear our sins, pay the ransom for our sins, and thereby set us free from the guilt of sin and from God's condemnation and judgment. As we saw last week, God has a people for whom Christ came. He has a people for whom he will die. He has a people whom he will save. And he has died. And they are saved. And those who are saved turn from their sins and they believe on him and they trust in him. And in Christ alone, they find the salvation that they need. And it is for us now to keep on repeating the good news. In the person of the Saviour, all God's majesty is seen. Love and justice shine forever. And without a veil between, we approach him and rejoice in his dear name. Would we view God's highest glory? Here it shines in Jesus' face. Sing and tell the wondrous story, O ye sinners saved by grace. And with pleasure bid the guilty him embrace. If you've never before done so, would you not today embrace Christ for salvation from sin and for life everlasting? If you do, he will from this day forward be your Emmanuel, God with you.